The following message is by Pastor Travis Cardwell. This sermon was preached at Baptist Church of the Redeemer. For more sermons, please visit bcredeemer.org. Amen. So let's look together at one of the most famous, famous sentences you and I will ever read. Matthew 7, verse 12. Jesus says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law in the prophets. So there's several problems that pop up with kind of a maxim like this, not with the statement, of course. There's no problems with what Jesus says. But when something like this becomes as popular as it's become, several problems can arise. Dangers. One danger is that the statement itself is misunderstood over time. So, for example, some version of the golden rule, as this is called, it appears prominently in almost every major religion. However, it interestingly almost always appears negatively. So, for example, Confucius was credited with having said, uh, do not to others what you would not wish done to yourself. See how he puts it negatively, not positively. Um, the, the famous Jewish teacher, Rabbi Hillel, was asked by a man to teach him the entire law while he was standing on one leg. So in other words, do this in a hurry. Give me a, give me a snapshot of what the whole law says. And this is what he said. He said, what is hateful to you, do not do to anyone else. Again, negatively. This is the whole law. All the rest is only commentary, he said. So kind of like an ethical version of that Hippocratic oath that physicians will take. So first of all, my, my main goal is don't do any harm. But if you notice, Jesus' words are not negative, they're positive. He says, do. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Friends, that's uniquely radical. Another danger with famous sayings like this is they just get removed out of their original context. So I did a quick search and just found the use of the golden rule in several places where, let's just say, it doesn't exactly line up with the context of Matthew 7 or with Christianity at all. So entrepreneur.com, was, there was an, idle, uh, an article titled, Why the Golden Rule Must Be Practiced in Business. Quote, treat your customers right and they'll be happier, more likely to come back, and more inclined to recommend you to friends and family. Treat your workers fairly and they'll be motivated to provide excellent service, which leads to satisfied and committed customers. And the numbers don't lie. Treating your workers well has been shown to lead to excellence, which of course leads to increased profits. And we could see that in lots of other areas, sports, you name it. That principle is often referred to as the ethic of reciprocity. What you do comes back to you. But again, you'll just notice Jesus doesn't mention any promise of profit. Or that our treatment of others will, will come back toward us in a similar treatment. Remember, the one who says this was killed for living this way. And Jesus' words are much more radical and connected to a specific context, and they assume a deeper motive than profit, or just a, a being, see people being nicer to you at the office. But probably the greatest danger of a statement like this isn't that people in the world misuse it or misunderstand it or take it out of context. It's that the people who do understand it, who do see the context, and in fact who are followers of Jesus, don't practice it. So I wonder how seriously you have thought about what Jesus 
calls us to in this. How serious have I thought about it? How familiar has this become to me? How fleshly has my view of it become? Not only is it the most radical, countercultural vision for loving our neighbors, it's also the most revealing of our selfish pride. We, the church, Christians, can be in danger of giving lip service to this, even studying it and praising this vision, but not seeking to apply it, to live it out. That's probably how it got its nickname, the golden rule. Some argue that it came kind of an unclear source around the Middle Ages, but most agree that this idea came from the third century from Roman Emperor Alexander Severus, who was so impressed with this Christian saying as a way of life that he had it inscribed in gold on the wall of his chamber. Now, Severus himself was not a Christian. So it was on his wall, important, but it never really made it into his life. Friends, Satan would love for you and I to be impressed with, to to memorize, to think about, and to praise the golden rule as long as we don't actually practice it. So the main point of this verse in this sermon is very straightforward this morning. Jesus calls us believers and enables us to love others as ourselves. Jesus calls us believers and enables us to love others as ourselves. So what I'd like to do this morning is just to think about the golden rule kind of from three perspectives, to look at it from three different angles. The first is that I want us to see the golden rule in its context, so located there in Matthew 7. Let's look at it in its context. Secondly, I want us to see the golden rule in summary. So it is the law and the prophets. I want to think about that with you. And then finally, um, and maybe most importantly for us, the golden rule in practice. A challenge for us to apply it, not just to admire it. So those notes are there in your bulletin if you want to follow along. And just uh, just as a reminder, if you're here as a Christian and you've been studying this with us, uh, you won't find a more straightforward picture of what following Jesus looks like than in the Sermon on the Mount. And even especially in this summary statement that Jesus makes, of what most of the Bible means. It's right here in Matthew 7, verse 12. So pray that God would open your mind and heart to hear and that, and that this would be our vision for all of our relationships. Now, the first angle we're going to look at is the context. So number one, the golden rule in context. Listen to this statement and see if you agree. Trying to live according to the golden rule means trying to... In- emphasize with other people, sorry, scratch that, empathize, not emphasize, trying to empathize with other people, including those who may be very different than us. Empathy is at the root of kindness and compassion, understanding and respect, qualities that we all appreciate being shown, whoever we are, whatever we think, and wherever we've come from. That's a pretty solid summary of what maybe the golden rule means. It came from a humanist website. It came from an article I found on a forum called Think Humanism, totally secular, but that it's adopted this this golden rule in practice. Also, apparently, the state of Kentucky sees value in the golden rule because everyone who takes their driver's safety course reads this at the very end of that course, treat other drivers as you would want to be treated. That's a sermon in and of itself, right? It shouldn't surprise us that Jesus' words would be valuable and useful for non-Christians. 
But we want to make sure and think about them in context. What is he actually saying to his disciples? So verse 12, if you notice, begins with that word so. If you have the ESV, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. If you have the NAS, it's therefore. It's that, that connective with what has gone before it. It tells us right away, this is not a disconnected statement of morality. But this is part of Jesus' argument in the sermon that he's been preaching. It summarizes what he's been saying. In fact, it likely sums up not just the last 12 verses of chapter 7, but the main body of the sermon itself. This is Jesus saying, this is kind of the main point of what I'm saying to you. So in chapter 7, if you think about what we've learned so far, Jesus has given us various responsibilities for disciples. He teaches that, that for us, with our brothers, we should offer them help. We shouldn't judge them sinfully. Uh, We should seek to apply God's word to ourselves, especially a a corrective word to to ourselves before we go and kind of um, go around judging them um, sinfully or, or being in their business. So think about the plank in my eye taking it out before I get out the speck in my brother's eye. We need to be constantly aware, Jesus says, that we have a heavenly Father who loves us and loves to answer our prayers. And then when we fail at, at exercising wisdom in relationships or trusting our Father, we're to ask and seek and knock. And God will forgive. He'll grant and he'll open. And if we just forget some of those details, just remember, do unto others as you want them to do unto you. And then I also think that phrase, law and prophets, is there to direct us back to chapter 5, verse 17. So just flip your Bible over there, chapter 5, verse 17. That's where Jesus kind of begins this centerpiece of the sermon. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come to not abolish them, but to fulfill them. You see how it makes it like a bookmark. That sort of begins the main point, and then Jesus kind of walks through after that and goes on to say that anyone who relaxes one of those commands is least in the kingdom. Those who do them and teach them is greatest in the kingdom. He describes a righteousness that's greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees that's required for kingdom entrance. That those, those law and prophet phrases act like bookmarks that make up the main body. That main point is to show how the law and prophets are fulfilled in Jesus and how this new covenant community, the local church, the body of believers, is now called to live out lives of love for God and for neighbor by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus has been teaching us. That's what we've been studying, this life. What does it look like? It looks like loving our enemies and turning from selfish lust and and being faithful in our marriages, keeping our word, not retaliating, not giving into anger, giving and praying and fasting, all in ways that glorify God, that don't uplift us, trusting God, not being paralyzed with anxiety, in a word, being perfect. Be perfect as I am perfect. And really, we, we talked about that word perfect, meaning complete, God completing us in Christ. Well, how does that complete person, spirit and dwelt person, interact with others? What's a summary of his or her life? It's verse 12. So here's my encouragement. Don't detach these words from the one who said it. And and our need for him. Don't detach the golden rule from the gospel. So, So parents, think about this in your own parenting. 
I don't know about you, but growing up for me, I grew up in the South, um, manners and polite etiquette and good behavior are like the trinity of parenting success. If you get that in your kids, you have done, you've achieved all you need to achieve. So we have our own, slang, our own sayings and slogans that are kind of derivatives of the golden rule. Like if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. That's a good, good rule to live by. How would you like to be hit by that bat? Right? Just kind of, but notice we're putting it negatively. It's natural, kind of, if we, if we leave it there, it's just easy for us to do. You don't want to be training, however, kind of well-mannered Pharisees. I'm all for, for manners. I'm, I'm all for, for, for good behavior and being nice. But friends, none of those things in and of themselves keeps us out of hell. Let the golden rule get you, parents, to the gospel in your parenting. So here's why, children, you don't want to love your sister like yourself because of sin in your life. And then let the gospel be the source for loving others. Because Jesus loved us when we didn't deserve it, love your brother who probably also doesn't deserve it. Think about this with your neighbor. Think about this in the way that you think about serving. Think about this the way you make it through difficult things, particularly in relationships. If you're a member of our church, think about this in your evangelism. The way that you tell others about the good news of Jesus, when you're sharing the gospel and you get just kind of hit with some things that are offensive to you, when someone says something that you don't agree with, maybe it's, maybe it's a shot at a misunderstanding about God or maybe it's a, even something you don't agree with politically or, or maybe there's something going on in their lifestyle that you just think, I've got to correct that thing. I just can't get past this person's language. But we don't need to be offended if non-Christians act and speak and vote and spend their money like non-Christians. They probably won't be practicing the golden rule, at least not in the way that we know Jesus calls us to do it. Let's just remember that, that they don't need to reform their language as much as they need to repent and believe. Don't start with rules. Start with loving them. Start with the gospel itself. We won't legislate sin out of people. We can't save them with slogans. They need, we need Jesus. So keep the golden rule in its context. Keep it close to the gospel. Secondly, secondly let's think about the golden rule in summary, what Jesus says and how he kind of thinks about the, the golden rule. And here I mean the way he just describes it as a summary of the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets. Notice that he says, for it is the law in the prophets. And we know from chapter 5, Jesus says he hasn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but, but to fulfill them and to enable his people to, to live them out. In other words, uh, if you want to obey the Bible, Jesus says, this is what it looks like, particularly as it relates to your relationships with others. This is what it looks like to obey God, loving your neighbor as yourself, treating others the way you would want to be treated. Now, underneath that are some implied realities, and that's why we read that section from Matthew 22. So that reality, number one, is loving your neighbor is really part two in a two-part summary of what the law and prophets are. And part two rests on part one. Part one, Mark read it just a minute ago, Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven: you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with your soul and with all of your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. So we can't start first with just 
loving my neighbor. I'm just going to go now and, and, and love my neighbor as myself. Friends, I think that's how this thing gets put on little cards in our business, businesses or the humanist website or our sports teams or at the DMV, or particularly in other religions. We have to start with God. We have to start with loving God, not, not passively, not acknowledging him, not partly, but with all that we are. So if you start with your neighbor, you're going to end up loving based on how much they deserve it, how much they have earned it, how you feel, how the circumstances are like for that day, their performance, and it will, it will end up being a ladder for you to get somewhere with God. But I'm saying, and Jesus is saying, start the other way. Look first to God. Look into his face. See him in all of his holiness, all of his power as our creator. And you will be, by his grace, brought low. You won't look at God as he's revealed to us in the scriptures and come away thinking much of yourself. We'll see that he's worthy to be praised and him alone, but we also will understand our sin before him. We'll be face to face with our sins and our darkness and thinking less immediately about our rights, what we deserve from others. We see what we truly deserve is God's justice because we have all turned our backs on him. We've all ignored him. We've run away from him and even tried to take his place as ruler in our own lives. This is the experience of every true Christian. And so if you, if you haven't been brought low by your sin before God's holiness, you're likely not a Christian. If you haven't looked at the holiness of God and realized your sinfulness before him, you're likely not a Christian here this morning. Look to God. The knowledge of God humbles us. It humbles us to the dust. We realize that we are unclean, that we cannot keep any of God's rules, especially this one, to love him with all that we, all that we have, all that we are, and to love our neighbor as ourself. Because if we don't love God, if we don't love him with all that we are, it's not because he's not worthy. It's not because there's a deficiency in him. It's because we are blinded by our sin. So, friend, just think about how revealing the golden rule is of our hearts, of our own hearts. Do you love your neighbor as you love yourself? And then if you don't know the answer right away, if you're struggling, uh, test it this way. Do you treat your neighbor the way you want to be treated? Do you treat your wife, husband, the way you want to be treated? Do you treat your parents son or daughter, the way you want to be treated, your, your friends, your siblings, your brother or sister, your coworker, the way you want to be treated. What about those that have hurt you? What about those that have treated you unfairly? What about your enemies? This is a review of what Jesus has been teaching, isn't it? These are the ones that he's called us to love. I think if you're honest with yourself, if I'm honest with myself, we know the answer. We, we can't keep this in our own strength. We, we are too dominated by the love of self. We cannot see past our selfish desires and plans to care about what others are going through, much less a God who might actually interrupt our plans and our goals. 
So, so one result of just staring at the golden rule is that we come face to face with just our spiritual bankruptcy. This is crucial, actually, that we, we come face to face with it. We bring nothing to the table with God. This can't be overlooked. You can't skip this step. Thinking about your sin, if you want to truly understand the grace of God in the gospel, and if you really want to love others the way that he has loved you, the golden rule is impossible for us to fulfill. And that's why we need to say more than just treat others the way that you want to be treated. We need to ask how. We need to ask and think about why. Friends, Jesus is not just a good preacher. He is a good preacher. But he's, he's more than just a talker about loving God and neighbor. Those two commandments, there in Matthew 22, love God, love your neighbor, basically sum up the, the Ten Commandments. The first half, love God, commandments one to four. Second half, love your neighbor, commandments five to ten. And you could even say they sum up the Sermon on the Mount. If you look at chapter six, verses one to 21, sort of focus on your love to God. And then kind of the end, kind of all the way through where we're studying, chapter 7, verse 11, focus on our relationship with man. My friends, here's the good news. Back to chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus fulfills the righteous demands of the law perfectly. Be perfect. As I am perfect, Jesus is perfect. He faithfully loved his Father with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then out of that love, he demonstrated a love for sinful man that we can barely even comprehend and describe. He came to earth as a man to die in our place, to take our judgment that we deserve, to take the wrath of God for us. And Jesus stepped in front of that wrath, in front of his people for us. So the same Jesus who laid down these laws gives his life for those who would break them. Friend, that's you and that's me. Turn from your sin. Turn from trying to do this life on your own and put your trust in the Savior. Trust and follow Jesus as your king. He has paid the penalty for your sins. He's risen from the grave to purchase a new life for you. We've just seen how in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is redeeming and making all things new. Just this whole picture of him bringing about a new creation as God created everything. In the beginning, Jesus now is making us new creatures born again by his spirit. Jesus is leading a new exodus like Moses led the people out of slavery in Egypt. Jesus is leading captives away from sin. And he's established and ratifying a new covenant by his blood that gives us new hearts with the law written on our hearts as a result of his perfect obedience in our place. All the law and the prophets point to Jesus. They point to this, this love that he has had for sinners. And not only does he, he, he command us to go and live that kind of life, he enables us to do it. He empowers us to do it through his death and resurrection through the Holy Spirit that lives in us. Friends, that's the summary of what the golden rule is. That, that's where we find it in the, in the Bible, in the context of Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. But friends, we can't stop there. We can't just admire it and see it. 
for what it is. We need to think and put step to obedience in applying it. So that's number three. The golden, the golden rule in practice. <clears throat> Jesus is really moving to conclusion in his sermon. And he's doing it with a point toward application. I'm sure we could all sit and listen to Jesus preach for days and days on end. Just keep preaching. But he makes sure that we understand that hearing and listening are only half of the battle. He says later in this chapter, as he's finishing up his sermon, that if we hear his words and do them, we will be like one who builds their house on the rock. And that's the theme of this, of this whole chapter. That's the theme of our series. Building our house on the rock. Hearing and doing the words that he has called us to. So that involves more than listening, more than thinking and contemplating, or even praising Jesus' words, although they're worthy of our praise. But Jesus calls us to obey them. So Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way, people hear the golden rule and they praise it as a marvelous and wonderful and perfect summary of a great and involved subject. But the tragedy is that having praised it, they do not implement it. And after all, the law was not meant to be praised, it was meant to be practiced. Our Lord did not preach the Sermon on the Mount in order that you and I might comment on it, but in order that we might carry it out. So friends, how is this working out in your life? What would happen if this happened all over the world? What if this, was, this were actually people's attitude all over the world? Everyone on the planet. Well, immediately we would have no war, no crime, no, no political upheaval. If nations were to think not only of themselves, but of the good of others. But we understand that sin has its effect. And we all see that as we just look around and understand the brokenness of this world. But step back from that picture, just into the one that's much closer to home. What if we, the the people of God, those who are part of the new covenant, who have the Spirit, who know Jesus and are committed to follow him, what if we live this out faithfully? I think a couple of clarifying things to say as you think about applying this to your life, if you just read it and think things will come to your mind, okay? Two clarifying statements, what Jesus is not saying. He doesn't say, number one, treat people the way they want to be treated. Notice that's not what he says. He says you should ask yourself first, how would I like to be treated? And I wonder why he starts there. Well, I think he knows it's an easy place for us to start because we know how we want to be treated. We think about it often. I think about how I want to be treated. It's, it's like on the tip of my tongue. We know what we like. We know how we like to be treated. But I think also Jesus understands that people who are blind in their sin, dead in their sin, don't know what's best for them. Don't know ultimately what God wants for them. And I think he expects us, his disciples, to know that. So, so more than just what we want, but what God wants for us. What's God's plan for me? What's God's intention for me as he's revealed it in his word? And if we love God, we want what God wants for us, and then that's how we want to be treated. That's how we should treat others. First clarifying statement. Second thing to say, Jesus never says that if we treat others the way we want to be treated, that we're going to be treated that way by them or by others. 
So, the, the, in fact, the opposite is what he says, right? In his promises, they're more about opposition and persecution and trusting God and his faithfulness when you're, when you're obedient to him. So we, we cannot and should not do this for our own gain or for profit. Uh, it's not a guarantee for future niceness from others. It's not paying it forward. Our love for others doesn't come from our self-interest. It comes from self-forgetfulness. It comes from satisfaction in God that surpasses any that the world could offer. So don't cheapen this by making it a means to get what you want from others. Our motivation to love others is simply putting God's love for us on display. That's what we're doing. 1 John 4, 10 and 11. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That's our motivation. That's what we want on display, people to see that before they say anything else. So those are the clarifying things. Now we have those out of the way. Think about personal application for you. Think about application for us as a church, as a congregation. And just think about that first phrase, whatever you wish that others would do to you. Just meditate on that for a minute. What do you wish others would do to you? How do you wish others would treat you? Do you like to be encouraged? Do you like for people to go out of their way and encourage you in the Lord? Do you like to be listened to? When you're in a conversation or you're trying to share a problem with someone, do you like for them to listen? Do you like to be welcomed? Maybe particularly when you don't naturally belong in a setting or a circle of friends. Do you like to be welcomed in? Now you need to be careful as, you, as I'm doing this myself and I'm, I'm noticing some of my own personal preferences bubble up. Actually, I like to be left alone. So I'm gonna leave people alone, Right? So you got to be real careful in the way that you even apply this and think about this. No, actually, God calls me to fellowship with other believers. So he calls me to biblical fellowship for iron to sharpen iron. That doesn't happen by myself on Netflix. So, so I'm not challenged there. I'm not held accountable there. I'm not asked hard questions when I'm isolated. So, so no, I want that biblical fellowship thing for others too. I want church membership, church involvement, the church should be a priority in someone's life because it makes all the difference in the world. I want that for others. We might like in our flesh to have superficial conversations. I don't really want to go deep today with you. But deep down over time, we know how empty that becomes. And we really do want more than that. And we know God wants more than that for us. We long for more and, and should want more for others. Because you can apply this in almost every area of, out there, every area of ethics, every area in your own personal relationships. Think about abortion. I like to be treated in a way that lets me live through birth, to not be killed. And so I want to see others be let to live. I want to see others be treated that way. And aren't you glad that someone shared the gospel with you? Aren't you, aren't you glad that, that someone kind of overcame the, the awkwardness of starting a spiritual conversation with you? Aren't you glad that someone took the time to be patient with all of your questions? Aren't you thankful that someone took the time to love you even though 
you were challenging to love and maybe still are challenging to love. Maybe you said some unhelpful things that they had to overlook and yet they still loved you. They invested in you time and prayer. And treat others the way you want to be treated. Brother, sister, think about your marriage. How easy is it to begin taking that person that you see every day in the morning and at night for granted? They become more functional than anything else. We know they have a job. I have a job. Let's do that job. In any relationship. Like how easy is it just to to think about you first and foremost and all those things that you need and you want and you expect. If you're a child, you're a teenager, a, a child with siblings, do you think like this? Kids, do you think like this? When was the last time you said to yourself, man, I love when I'm treated this way, so I'm going to make sure and treat my brother this way? Well, Jesus wants us to think like that. He wants us to think like that, to, to love people like that. You see how the applications here are limitless. These need to be care group conversations. These need to be conversations over lunch. These need to be conversations between you and God in prayer. Some of you are, are thinking about foot rubs. Some of you are thinking about evangelism. Some of you are thinking about angry clashes with coworkers. And that's the beautiful thing about Jesus' teaching. Uh, it really isn't a rule, is it, at all? It's a vision. He's giving us a vision for life. J.C. Ryle says it this way. It settles a hundred difficult points. It prevents the necessity of laying um, our own endless little rules for our conduct in specific areas. He gives a vision for life. You don't have to have a rule book. You can simply ask, how would I want to be treated in this situation? How would God want me to be treated? And then without exception, without an expectation for anything in return, we love our neighbor that way. That sounds very simple. But you need to know Jesus died to enable us to live that way. He's that, it's just that valuable to him. And when we do, we, we ourselves actually are fulfilling God's commands. So Paul says this really clearly, a couple of places. Galatians 5, 13 and 14, he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Just telling us what Jesus said. Romans 13, 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. It's through our love for one another that others will see that we are his disciples. It's when they see how the gospel changes us and frees us from the enslavement of self. 2 Corinthians 5.14, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This is the the application portion where we we think about the gospel and we think about every day and say, "How, how can we do this faithfully? So as we close, I just want to ask God to help us just to be hearers and doers of the word. John Calvin said that so many quarrels occur because men knowingly and willingly trample justice toward others under their feet while demanding perfect justice for themselves. Wars between nations and wars between individuals both begin this way. 
All of us can explain minutely and ingeniously what ought to be done for us. So we should apply the skill and wisdom to the needs of others. So friend, just some questions here as we close of application. First one is, do you love God? Has your love for God grown cold? Have you been close to him in prayer? Have you been regularly reminding yourself of the truths of the gospel? Have you been fellowshipping with his people? Have you been reading his word? Have you been considering his holiness and his righteousness and your sinfulness and the glory of God and Christ in the gospel? How's your love for God? Another question. When was the last time you spent some time thinking about the reality of hell? the biblical reality of hell? Have you connected people in your life who do not know Jesus to that reality of eternal conscious torment? How does a biblical understanding of hell change the way that you're going to love people tomorrow? The way I'm going to love people tomorrow. Another question, who in your life right now needs to be loved like this? Who in your life right now needs to be loved like this? Who in your life are you struggling to love like this right now? Think about someone maybe in our church that you're struggling to love like this. Think about someone outside of our church. Maybe someone in your family, but maybe someone even outside of that. What steps do you need to take to obey Jesus in those relationships? Think about this. Another question. How is a love of self getting in the way of you loving like this? So are there areas of repentance that just kind of are bubbling up as you think about this? Blockades that are going to keep you from doing this. What steps of repentance do you need to take even today as you hear Jesus teaching. Another thing, if you find yourself discouraged, and listen, the Sermon on the Mount is set up in such a way that it, it, it shows us the standard, it shows us Jesus meets it for us, and then it keeps pointing us back to him, saying this is what we're called to, but we fall short back to him for growth, for forgiveness, for pardon, for strength. Friend, if you find yourself in that situation, What's keeping you from going back to him for forgiveness, for encouragement? Maybe for the first time. Maybe you've never actually put your trust and faith in him. Just for that reminder that he's actually pleased with you because of what he's done for you, that God loves you. He's praying for you. He's strengthening you. I mean, don't forget the, 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 the basis for this vision for love of others is the way God has loved us who didn't deserve it. That's the basis for all that we're talking about. Jesus was killed because he loved this way. We didn't deserve this. God's grace is available to us all through Jesus. So if we're poor in spirit, Jesus says ours is the kingdom. If we mourn, we'll be comforted. If we hunger and thirst for more of this, for righteousness, we will be satisfied. When we will ask he will answer. When we seek, he, we will find. When we knock, it will be open to us. So friends, hear these, this sentence again. 
Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Let's pray as we close. Lord, we need you. Thank you for the good news. Thank you that you have saved us and are saving some in this room and are at work in so many ways. Thank you that we're not blind to this. Lord, we pray you would just continue to work in us, removing and breaking down these sinful, fleshly obstacles that stand in the way between us loving like this, Lord, what you've called us to. Lord, I don't know what the divides are in this room and what the the issues are, Lord, but so grateful that you do. And so I pray that you would be, we would be just together responding to you as as we sing, as we spend a minute in silence and as we sing, Lord, and as we fellowship together, I pray those conversations would be flavored with this not just today, but but throughout the week and the coming weeks. Lord, sanctify us. We know that's your will, that we would be sanctified, made to be more like Jesus, and that this church would be strengthened, that this church would be more clear in its witness to, to Christ. Lord, I pray you do this in me. Lord, show me areas that, that are, I'm blind to, that I'm just walking in my own selfishness. Lord, help us. We thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. For the glory of God, Baptist Church of the Redeemer seeks to obey Christ in the great commission task of making disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can find out about us at our website, bcredeemer.org.